Now, each Monday at 2.30, we invite an expert in a particular field to educate us on a subject we'd like to know a little more about. Really fascinating one today, dreams. One of the great mysteries of human consciousness. It's been theorized that on average we dream for about two hours each night. Some remember dreams better than others, but most people can recall a strange or coincidental or terrifying dream that's had them scratching their heads. So why do we dream, and do our dreams really mean anything to tell us the science behind it all? I'm joined by Dr. Rosie Gibson, a senior lecturer at Massey University's School of Psychology. Hi there, Rosie. Kia ora, Jesse. Can you tell me where your interest in dreams and sleep comes from? Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, well, kia ora, yeah, I've been working um, at Massey University um, for 10 or 12 years, but my interest in sleep um, comes sort of pre that. I've got a background in psychology and actually kind of grew up working more in clinical sleep and sleep physiology, but because my sort of gut or heart instinct is in the kind of the psychosocial aspects of um, sleep. Of course, dreaming kind of rears its head, you know, constantly across my kind of career in sleep. So a lot of my work has actually been around sleep and ageing and changes with ageing and and different sort of social um, situations, like with certain um, conditions like dementia or or family situations like caregiving. But increasingly, we see when we incorporate kind of qualitative methods to our research where we actually ask people about how they're sleeping and how that's changed over their life course of course the subject of dreams comes up regularly and it's something that we're sort of increasingly looking more into now um, through my collaborations um, in the school of psychology where we're looking more closely at um, kind of exceptional experiences uh, and cultural experiences of dreaming so yeah if you if you were talking If you were talking to someone in a clinical psychology setting, if you were trying to help somebody, give them some therapy or some um, some help with something they're going through, would it be useful for them to tell you what they dream about? <laughs> well, I'm not a clinical psychologist. And I think what, what's interesting, though, is dreams have been used kind of therapeutically um, you know, for many, many years through, through different, uh, different approaches. So we know sort of psycho psychoanalytically you know I guess we can't go past sort of mentioning people like Sigmund Freud um, or um, you know those early psychoanalysts who were looking into dreaming so we know you know that contents or symbolism of dreams being used in psychiatry but even predating that we know culturally that dreams were used as kind of healing or message seeking Um, nowadays more so we use dreaming perhaps um in therapies around um, nightmares, post-traumatic stress disorder, we can incorporate things like techniques around lucid dreaming or, uh, yeah, working with uh, particularly sort of stressful anxiety type provoking dreams. Um, yeah, so that there is definitely something in using them in that kind of clinical setting. For sure. um, some of my questions, some questions from listeners um, that I'll just throw randomly at you, like this one from Jill right. in Christchurch who asks, <laughs> who asks, do blind people dream? And I think what Jill's getting oh. at there is if, if, you have, if you've never had sight, what would your dreams yep. be like? Yes. Well... They do. There is some studies with um, blind people and dreaming. So we know, obviously, many of us will associate dreaming with that kind of universal, very visual experience. But we do know that blind people do dream as well. They can involve a combination of 
kind of sensory experiences, emotions, memories, and imagination. For for someone who is born blind, their dreams may be more heavily on those senses around sort of touch or taste or smell. Mm. Uh, if someone became blind later in life, then you might have the incorporation of visual imagery, kind of depending on yeah, which areas of the brain are kind of affected. Uh, if you've never had vision, then you can have, certainly can have not. Back to our dreams expert now, Rosie Gibson. And Rosie, what is happening in your head when you're dreaming? <laughs> oh, what's happening in my head when I'm dreaming? Well, well, not you I in guess, particular, Rosie. Uh, what, me? No, you what don't is, want to know about my dreams. What is happening no, in well, one's <laughs> head when one is dreaming? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, dreams really vary in content, but there has there is some common features definitely um, around sensation, movement, orientation, characters and and thought processes and I think really dreaming is a kind of form of thinking or mentation it's an event that we kind of actually experience and it does simulate real life and there's certainly lots of different explanations around what's going on so those kind of neurological explanations really came to the fore you know in the 1950s or so we we had the invention or the you know we discovered REM sleep so sleep science has really moved on a lot since then and we've realized that a lot of dream experiences occur during rapid eye movement sleep so we know um, that the occurrence and content of dreams kind of differs between that stage of sleep Um, it's more visual um, it's more emotive um, than in other stages of sleep and so what we do know around around that stage of sleep is that our visual cortex is very busy and Mm. a system called our limbic system is also very busy and they're responsible for uh, processing perception of visual data as well as um, all that emotion and memory kind of um, activity. And the areas that are less active um, is kind of what we call the frontal cortex, which is um, really more around our... Uh, sensible thought processes, I suppose you'd like to say, all that, um, you know, formal functioning. So yeah. what the theories are around dreaming from that neurophysiological perspective is there's a lot of activity going on or reignition of areas that are active during waking, um, but the ones that make sense of them are less are less active and less able to make sense of them. So it's not really until we kind of wake up and they call it kind of an activation synthesis. So when we reactivate everything, we synthesize all of the activity going on in the background and kind of put a story to that and provide a memory of the actual dream experience. Well, that what makes is, sense? Yeah, but what is the point of dreaming, Rosie? <laughs> well, again, there's lots of different functions or theories, but from that neurological perspective, a lot of the theory is around the consolidation of memories and cognitive processing. So memory like sleep is pretty, inco- is pretty complicated, but some suggest that we dream to erase the kind of unnecessary connections that we make during waking and that the dream serves to kind of weaken the unnecessary neural connections, but also to strengthen the ones that are more important. So we know ah. that, again, that REM stage of sleep is really important for consolidating uh, procedural memories, so things like the kind of doing memories, the le- you know, um, how to do something or learning new information those kind of networks are strengthened, whereas the the less important stuff is weakened. Um, you know, maybe like what you had for breakfast yesterday, we can get away with that. But if you're learning a new tennis move, then that's yeah. strengthened during during the. And we also know increasingly that you know there's kind of a cleansing that's going on during that stage of sleep. So there's a lot of theories now around you know when this 
REM stage or the dreaming stage of sleep is deprived, that we have poorer cognition on waking, and if it's exacerbated for a long time, we know that this um, has an impact on the cleansing of the amyloid and things in the brain that can lead to memory issues down the line and, and things like dementia risk and so on. So there's, those neurological theories are quite based on the activity of the brain and the areas of the brain that we know are responsible for you know those good things like memory processing and attention and emotional regulation as well you know a lot of the neuropsychological theories are around how dreams serve to kind of help us play out um emotional anxieties or um or yeah kind of deal with what we're dealing with in the waking life i suppose do do some people dream more than others well everybody dreams um we know that because it's related to that REM state of sleep, in theory, we have sort of five or six cycles of sleep per night. So the actual activity that we associate with dreaming is occurring for everybody. So whether or not you do remember it, like we know people do say that they don't dream, um, but it's usually based on whether whether or not we actually remember our dreams. So we know that we're more likely to remember a dream if we wake up from REM sleep. Yeah. And in our modern society, if we're using things like alarm clocks mm. or your children are waking you up from a non-REM stage of sleep, <laughs> um, you're going to be waking up groggy. If we're waking up and leaping out of bed and not necessarily taking the time to reflect on what we were dreaming about, then we're more likely to discard the yeah, the dream quick, um, experience. Quick yeah. shout out, a quick shout-out to anyone listening who wakes up on their own terms what is that life like well that's right well so we know a little bit about that with covid so this is an interesting period where the schedules of sleep were kind of um changed because less less people were having to use alarms or set you know we could set our own schedules a little bit we weren't running by you know the cycles of you know because we were Mm. working from home or schooling so what we saw in covid was a bit of an increase in strange dreams um, <laughs> as well as kind of more dreams being oh, right. during yeah. that time people and will that remember could be that. one of the explanations yeah. yeah some really weird dreams yeah as well because of the situation huh yeah um someone wants to know what's happening when someone sleepwalks is that related to dreaming ah oh, rosie again do you want to see if you can um Get her back on phone, Sam. We might be uh, more reliable on phone between now and 3 p.m. Um, than the Zoom. Let me know. Um, after 3 o'clock, Sam Irby is here. She is going to make you laugh, I predict. She is full of energy. She is, I described her earlier as a Larry David character. She's, her new book of essays is uh, all about the things that annoy her in life. Um, including the relentlessly positive, her words. Um, What's her book called? Quietly Hostile. (laughs) Uh, And she was one of the producers on the Sex and the City reboot. In fact, for her job interview, she said, can I please give Carrie, the main character, diarrhea? And they said, not only can you, but you've got the job, so that'll give you an idea not that a lot of her humour is toilet humour, but um, it'll give you an idea of how subversive she is um, and the sort of fun she likes to have. Uh, she also wrote on a TV show called Shrill, if you ever came across that. She was uh, 
she was the architect behind a scene called, and I think I've got this right, the Chunky Pool Party, um, which I'll let her explain when she joins me after three o'clock. How are we doing there, team, in Wellington? Do we need more music or do we need to go back to our dreams expert? Thank you for the uh, questions that are coming through, by the way. My boyfriend has a theory that there's no such thing as a recurring dream. He thinks you only dream that you've dreamt that dream before. I disagree because I have the same dreams all the time. What does your expert think? Well, Dr. Rosie Gibson is back with us now. Rosie, um, <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I hey, don't sleep, know what's going on. Sleepwalking first. Is sleepwalking related to dreaming? No, not so much. So sleepwalking, we know, is more related to um, a different stage of sleep, like stage two sleep. So when we're dreaming, usually we're pretty much paralyzed muscle-wise. Huh. It's really only our, our eyes and our brain that's working away. Intent, you know, the rest of the body is disconnected, um, and some of that's kind of protected, so we're not acting out. Because actually the motor sensation area of our brain is very active but um it's kind of disabled from being so sleepwalking something a bit different and we see that more in children when sort of sleep architecture is developing but um yeah okay so what about what about recurring yeah. what about recurring dreams then you can see all this argument for uh, our listener do do recurring dreams exist do people dream about the same thing over and over again well yeah they do i mean we tend to see that more in situations, you know, unfortunately, with those negative dreams, nightmares, for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, quite often we have yeah. recurring dreams. Uh, it's more likely there, for sure. And um, this can be, you know, people have experienced social traumatic events. Um, you know, recurring dreams might be a symptom of that, and it's one of the kind of hallmarks. And so they're more likely vivid, intense, and frightening. And this is where we see, you know, when we mentioned earlier around therapies where we can actually use the dream experience to kind of try and combat that so for it can be I mean some people have recurring pleasant dreams for sure but you, you know what we tend to see with things like nightmares and distressing dreams is there's a bit of you know some emotional processing or work that perhaps is going on there or it's actually because of that um, what we we're talking earlier about the kind of neural networks and memory it's just being kind of replayed so you can work to maybe train someone to become a bit more lucid during their dream and combat that but we also do see in other um, other populations, you know, that recurring dreams may be more common and they might be more pleasant. So some of the work I'm doing with my colleagues in Central Indigenous Psychology is looking at um, sleep and dreaming. So people have had a near-death experience and sometimes recurring dreams can happen to these um, people, but it seems it's not considered as problematic and actually can be quite exceptional or spiritual in nature and then quite... Um, yeah, quite quite happy to have you know quite welcome um, experience. Yeah, yeah. Can can you you mentioned this? Can you successfully teach someone to be more lucid um, to actually wake up in their dreams and start controlling things or doing something about what they're seeing? Yeah, so we know you know lucid dreaming's um, a pretty exciting area. I mean, the dream is all sort of in the eye of the beholder, like we said earlier. Everyone potentially does it, and it's how much attention we pay to it. Usually that area of our brain that's responsible for logical thought is more disengaged during sleep. What's happening in lucid dreaming is it's that term to becoming consciously aware that we're in a dream and in this state the dreamer has access to some of their waking attributes like being able to kind of use their willpower and participate in events during the dream. It doesn't necessarily mean you can control it, but you can certainly learn to influence them and a lot of people will use these um, 
to do things like learn to fly and, you know, things that you just really couldn't do in waking life. But again, with those nightmares, you could potentially, you know, turn around and actually face the person who's chasing you or fight back or shut down, you know, see the face of whoever's chasing you or come over it. So what we see with lucid dreaming, it's quite often more vivid, more enhanced, um, pretty pretty awesome. Again, like you say, having the opportunity to train yourself and enjoy the sleep experience um, and the lucid experience is pretty pretty awesome. But it's, again, it's something that people who are able to lucid dream, you know, uh, really enjoy. And it's something that can make, you know, the sleep and dream experiences, you know, it's not just an offline state. We're just going to bed to get that eight hours. You can actually achieve and experience something quite remarkable. It's quite exciting. What can we learn from the content of our dreams? Well... (laughs) I guess it depends on the approach that we take to it, doesn't it? Um, historically, you know, I guess, again, if we go back to thinking, you know, Sigmund Freud, of course, he's a bit of a household name. And those kind of psychological, you know, early psychological theories would say that the dream, you know, that there's content there that's been symbolized, you know, that the, it's the suppressed wishes and that we could, in theory, decode our dreams and use that kind of therapeutically. Um, certainly, as times progress, more of our developmental psychology approaches think that, you know, we could actually use dreams to rehearse social situations. If we know, if we sort of understand more around sleep and their role in, in memory and so on, you know, learning new techniques or skills. People say if, you, if you're learning a new language, when you start to dream in that new language, that's kind of a sign that you're really kind of getting there. So, yeah, we can certainly use dreams in that sense, um, you know, to heal, you know, psychologically heal as well um, as do some of those sort of improve some of those cognitive functions. Yeah. What about or, colors? Or just the enjoying experience of it. Yeah. But should we pay attention to symbols and colors? and particular people in dreams uh, as a useful way of understanding what's going on in our own subconscious? Yeah, well, I guess this is all. This is where it starts to come sort of to personal preferences, how much you want to read into them. We know that there's kind of some norms around, you know, how vivid dreams should be and things like colour and how often people have things like pain or certain kind of movement or appearance of vehicles or animals and what it might mean if you have more or less or something so um yeah we can we can look into that but certainly we take some of those norms and i guess decoding of dreams you know we have to be careful because a lot of those have been built on you know historically on research that's been you know in college american college students essentially but i think increasingly we've got a bigger body of those kind of norms um, from across across the world, but sometimes it's more actually. We know there's so so much difference individually, socially and culturally around our waking experience. So actually, I think it's more a case of looking within. If if you if you're wanting to interpret your dream or find um, some kind of connection with it, it's actually thinking more around what's going on in my life and what could this mean for me. And I think that's why, you know, some of those. Neurological explanations around sleeping and dreaming is really cool and it's fascinating, but it sometimes takes away um, some of that. You know, it's quite objective and doesn't capture that experience um, around kind of um, the personal, communal, cultural, spiritual aspects of what sleep and dreaming can mean. And that's also really, could be really important.
are you surprised there hasn't been more hard research on dreams, given how interested at least lay people are in in them? Well, there is a lot. There is a lot. There's just not. We just haven't had a, a big movement yet in New Zealand around dreaming-related research. There's certainly a huge amount comes out of America and Europe. You know, this is how we've learned all this stuff around which areas of the brain are more active during certain stages of sleep and within dreaming. And if you poke people and wake them up at certain stages, what they remember. So we do. There is a lot of dreaming-related research going on. It's not. I think you know, with a lot of these areas, you know, sleep sciences is underfunded and it's quite it's been quite medicalized and so that's why it's quite exciting some of the work and um, that we're now looking into in New Zealand is more from a social cultural approach and we are starting to ask some of those questions around around dreaming and, and what it means kind of culturally and socially because some of those kind of more historic ideas, you know, we know sort of ancient Egyptians and Greeks paid a lot of attention to sleep and dreaming and interpretation of dreams and so on and we think of those as historical but I think with resurgences in um, indigenous cultures and ideas, including, you know, for ourselves here in Aotearoa, we're seeing really rapid increases in knowledge and practices around things like phases of the moon. So Maramataka um, and annual celestial cycles like Matariki. So we're getting these deeper cultural understandings of what it's time use and productivity and, you know, when we should be doing things. And that all informs things like sleep and dreaming. So, some of the newer work we're involved with now will start to ask questions around that. And certainly some of the preliminary work we've done, we're seeing some of those narratives around, you know, while the body's asleep, you know, that the spirits can become awake and that provides opportunities for connection. Um, You know, dreams could be providing some guidance or a testing kind of thought. Yeah, so there's some interesting ideas that we've yet to explore, but we're looking to explore. Emily, Emily's doctor, Emily's doctor prescribed vitamin B6 for dream recall. You've heard of that before? Oh, no, <laughs> no, okay. I haven't. But it's not to say, does it work? I don't know. <laughs> don't know. Let us know, Emily. Someone else wants to know, is using a sleeping pill like Zopaclone affecting yep. consolidation of learning and memory? Well, we know that the sleep that we get when we're using things like sleeping medications, although it will knock us out, the actual quality of sleep's not quite the same as what we call kind of real mm. sleep so it's a bit masked so it it may hinder some of those rich properties of true sleep yeah and that's and that's sort of one of the reasons why you know usually clinicians will recommend sort of short-term use of those kind of drugs okay i want to make sure i um have time for margaret's questions might be last oh, question yeah. uh, i couldn't sleep after my husband died and i read that a banana before bed may help i never eat bananas but i gave it a go night one good sleep Night two, <laughs> night two, vivid dreams. Night three, raging lurid terror all night long. Terrifying. I've never eaten a banana again. Oh my god! I don't know. I don't know the answer around that, but we certainly know that the things that we eat do affect our sleep and dreams. And some people, I think, I have heard bananas are not great for making you go to sleep, and I can't remember why. Maybe it's something to do with potassium. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. But certainly, like rich foods, like. Cheese and, you know, like the cheese giving you nightmares and stuff like that. We know that foods that are going to give you indigestion, like spicy or fatty foods, can cause problems with dreams. And certainly alcohol can inhibit REM at the beginning of the night and it comes back to the surge later. So we see sometimes more weird or nightmarish dreams okay. and things like that. Rosie, I'm that out of time. I really appreciate your time Thank today. You. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosie nice Gibson. Yeah, you too. Senior lecturer at Massey University's School of Psychology, answering your dreams questions.